Welcome our fellow patriots to the Patriot Lessons American History and Civics podcast, where we renew the spirit of America by learning about what makes America the greatest nation in world history, including our founding first principles, key documents and speeches, founding fathers and other great patriots, as well as flags and other key symbols of America. As a general reminder, don't forget to check out Patriot Week's website at patriotweek.org. I am Oakland County Circuit Court Judge Michael Warren and a former member of the State Board of Education in Michigan. We have a team of special Patriot narrators, including myself, Mike Gerard Skinechny, who is the host of the podcast, Be Reasonable with Mike Gerard. He also goes by Skin, and the bombastic Brent Bassett. This episode, we continue our intense review of the Declaration of Independence. We are doing so because, as these tumultuous times reveal, Although liberty is our birthright, it can easily vanish if we don't understand and defend it. If you missed prior episodes, you might want to go back and catch up to where we are now. But if not, please join us right here and right now. When we return, we will examine the earth-shattering sentence, quote, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive to these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them so seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Unquote. Welcome back, my fellow patriots. Our Declaration of Independence was unique in the course of human history. We declared, quote, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, unquote. As our prior episodes have revealed, that passage declared for the whole world the foundations of our government. These include that we believe in truth. Truth is a tremendously important concept. We believe that there is a right and wrong, honesty and falsehoods, good and evil. Things are not relative. Truth is timeless. We also believe that some truths do not need explanation. They are so obvious that you don't need to defend why they are true. Among those self-evident truths are what I call the first principles. We are all created equal. We are born with certain rights. Those rights are not given to us by government. Instead, we have them just by being part of the human race. Those rights are given to us by the Creator, nature and nature's God. Among our unalienable rights are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Governments are instituted by men through a social compact. That is, we give up some rights to a government, our natural rights, to protect the rest of our unalienable rights. The purpose of government is to protect our unalienable rights. Governments derive their just powers only through the consent of the governed. Just governments have limited powers dedicated to protecting our unalienable rights. I'm summarizing our prior episodes on the Declaration of Independence because only with that background does this episode really make sense. If you haven't listened to those prior episodes, you might seriously consider doing so. Natural law, truth, equality, 
unalienable rights, the social compact, limited government. These are all essential to understanding why we have a right to reform or abolish an oppressive government. In this episode, we are exploring the next sentence of the Declaration, quote, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive to these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness, unquote. Now, before we talk about what all this means, let's just very briefly explore what it does not mean. There are many reasons why people revolt against the government. Sometimes it is something very simple, like a change of who is going to be the king. There is a war at the top of society of who will rule. People with competing claims for the throne engage in mortal combat to see who will rule. For example, the War of Roses in England. There is bloodshed about what person or royal family will rule, but it almost has no effect on the broader society. Nothing really changes except who rules. Another dramatic revolt is a coup d'etat, in which the head of the government is overthrown, often by a military or some other kind of uh, paramilitary force, and is replaced. Nothing in history is more common than an ethnic group revolting from under the oppression of an empire. There are also wars of national liberation from colonizing forces. Religious conflicts break out into open warfare. There are so many podcast series here that the options are almost infinite. I hesitate to even bother to start listing more examples because it could easily degenerate into a long laundry list. Suffice it to say that the American Revolution was truly unique. Until 1763, the colonists were perfectly happy being British subjects with the rights of Englishmen. They ended up fighting a war of liberation at first to defend those rights of Englishmen, and later the first principles delineated in the Declaration of Independence, which was truly revolutionary. To flesh this out, we will return to our old friend, John Locke, a British philosopher who was very influential with the Founding Fathers. Locke wrote in his second treatise on civil government that government was instituted to protect our unalienable rights, and that the people need to consent to the formation of a government and its actions for the government to be lawful. This is the idea of the social compact, and it underlies the whole idea of why we are bound to follow what the government mandates. Locke also wrote that to be just, that is legitimate, valid, and fair, a government should only have the power it needed to protect our unalienable rights. But Locke was no fool. He looked around the world and peered into recent and ancient history and realized that such governments were rare. Indeed, the dominant state of affairs was not some idealistic government and society that protected the rights of the people with rainbows and unicorns, but it was quite the opposite, governments that oppressed the people in violation of their unalienable rights. If you have doubt of this, just revisit the examples of the last several episodes addressing the Declaration of Independence, in which we reviewed governments that did the opposite of protecting the unalienable rights of the people. Governments that massacred their people instead of preserving their rights and lives. Governments that suppressed the people's liberty instead of guaranteeing them. Governments that forced people into caste and other regimes that denied their own people the right to equality and the pursuit of happiness. And governments that were unlimited in power instead of limited authority. Remember the oppression and unlimited authority of North Korea, 
Pharaoh and the French Revolution, the caste systems of India, Sri Lanka, and Ethiopia, and the divisions of society in the ancient regime, the genocides of Rwanda, the Soviet Union, and Communist China, you get the picture. When we discuss limited government, we learn that we established a social compact to avoid Thomas Hobbes' nightmare of the war of all against all. As such, the government should not make life worse for the people than in a state of nature. Locke reflects that if a government went beyond its just authority, and instead of protecting the unalienable rights of the people, it violated those rights, the government would be attempting to enslave the people. He didn't mince words. Quote, he who attempts to get another man into his absolute power does thereby put himself into a state of war with him. He who would get me into his power without my consent would use me as he pleased when he got me there and destroy me too when he had a fancy to it. For nobody can desire to have me in his absolute power unless it is to be to compel me by force to that which is against the right of my freedom, i.e., make me a slave, unquote. Let me repeat that. If the government coerces the people in violation of the first principles of the social compact and limited government and violates your unalienable rights, it is enslaving you. Such a violation of natural law is a perversion of our unalienable rights and the purpose of government. The government, instead of bringing peace and security, has become our enemy. Locke continues, quote, to be free from such force is the only security of my preservation, and reason bids me look on him as an enemy to my preservation who would take away that freedom, so that he who makes an attempt to enslave me thereby puts me into a state of war with me." Unquote. Not only that, but an attempt to subvert our freedom in one instance reveals a design that the oppressor likely wants to take away all of our rights. And oppression against one is the harbinger of tyranny against all. After all, if a government infringes one right, why not violate them all? If a government violates the rights of one person, doesn't that allow it to violate the rights of all the people? Locke thought so. So he explained in this passage, quote, He that in the state of nature would take away the freedom that belongs to anyone in that state must necessarily be supposed to have a design to take away everything else that freedom being the foundation of all the rest, as that they in the state of society would take away the freedom belonging to those of that society or commonwealth, must be supposed to design to take away from them everything else, so as it is to be looked on as in a state of war." Unquote. We need to be on guard to resist any infringement of our natural rights. And when an infringement happens, then the people have the right to resist the government's actions. After all, if we were in a state of nature, we would all have the right to defend ourselves. It is only because there could be a war of all against all that we have joined together in the social compact. But if the social compact is destroying the very rights it's supposed to protect, then we have the God-given right to resist the government because the government has in essence declared a war against us. Locke summarizes this very simply. Quote, Whosoever uses force without right, as everyone does in society who does it without law, puts himself into a state of war with those against whom he so uses it. And in that state, all former ties are canceled, all other rights cease, and everyone has a right to defend himself 
to resist the aggressor, unquote. This proposition, as radical as it was at the time, was deeply embedded in the American mindset. Just how deeply is revealed by how often it is repeated in the years leading to the American Revolution. To explore this colonial mindset, we turn to our fabulous guest star, our dear friend Mike Gerard Skinechny, who we have affectionately nicknamed Skin. Although now he goes by the fancy moniker Mike Gerard in his own podcast, Be Reasonable with Mike Gerard. Skin, please present your Skin segment. Thanks, Judge. Now, he's just laid out a great foundation for Locke, and it's time to explore what the founding generation themselves really thought. As we've learned in prior episodes, the clergy in colonial America were at the forefront of revolutionary ideas and were widely influential in the development of American thought. They often gave stirring sermons that shaped and reinforced the political thinking of the day. One fine example was given by Daniel Shute. We've heard from him before in an election sermon on May 26, 1768. Shute was a Congregationalist minister in Massachusetts and served in the Massachusetts Constitutional Convention that ratified the U.S. Constitution. He was a leader for decades. Shute begins by noting that civil leaders should stay within the limits of their due and just powers and, if otherwise, the subject can be under no obligation to observe them, but may be morally obliged to resist them, as it must be ever right to obey God rather than men. Shute not only says people have a right to resist oppression, but they have a duty to God to do so. In fact, he elaborates that not only do the people have a duty to resist, but the idea of non-resistance is in defiance of divine will. In fact, it is an idea of the prince of darkness. He goes right for the jugular. The doctrine of passive obedience and non-resistance, in the unlimited sense it has been urged by some, came not down from above, as it can be supported neither by reason nor revelation, and therefore, if anywhere, may be urged with a better grace by the rulers of darkness in the regions below, upon those who by the righteous decree of heaven are excluded the common benefits of creation than by those powers that are ordained of God for the good of mankind. Wow, you have to love Minister Shute. He held nothing back. Shute also echoed Locke's warning that a loss of one's right jeopardized the loss of all. Now, another influential colonial preacher, Gad Hitchcock, was the minister of the Congregational Church in Pembroke, Massachusetts. He gave a similarly riveting election sermon in Boston in 1774. He was acclaimed for his knowledge of the Bible, history, and theology, as well as his fearless teaching. At this sermon, he was addressing General Thomas Gage, the newly appointed governor of Massachusetts, and the governor was accompanied by shiploads of British troops. After the Boston Tea Party, Gage had been appointed with the specific purpose of crushing the resistance to British oppression exhibited by Bostonians and other people in Massachusetts. You'd think that the Redcoats' presence might temper the comments of Hitchcock. Not at all. He actually took Shute's theme an extra step and explained that if the people were timid and did not resist oppression, that they would simply be inviting a dreadful slavery over the people. Thus, only by showing a stiff resolve to oppose tyranny could the people 
remain free. If it be true that no rulers can be safe where the doctrine of resistance is taught, it must be true that no nation can be safe where the contrary is taught. If it be true that this dispose men of turbulent spirits to oppose the best rulers, it has true that other dispose princes of evil minds to enslave and ruin the best and most submissive subjects. If it be true that this encourage all public disturbance and all revolutions whatsoever, it is as true that the other encourage all tyranny and all the most intolerable persecutions and oppressions imaginable. So it was clear to the patriots that they needed to resist British oppression if they had any chance of remaining free. This sentiment was also expressed in other colonies and by laypersons. For example, in Rhode Island, Silas Downer was a lawyer and a member of the Providence Committee of Correspondence. Some have dubbed him the penman of the revolution in Rhode Island. In 1768, he delivered the oration dedicating the Liberty Tree in the colony. Now, the Liberty Tree was a tree where patriots gathered to plan how to oppose British oppression. Joining Locke and Shute, he passionately declared that the people had an absolute God-given duty to oppose any encroachments on their liberty. He added that it was a duty not only to God, but also to all the generations before who had worked so hard to secure them the blessings of liberty and that they would be rolling in their graves if such hard-fought liberties were not protected at every and any encroachment. Dearly beloved, let us with unconquerable resolution maintain and defend that liberty wherewith God hath made us free. As the total subjection of a people arises generally from gradual encroachments, it will be our indispensable duty manfully to oppose every invasion of our rights in the beginning. Let nothing discourage us from this duty to ourselves and our posterity. Our fathers fought and found freedom in the wilderness. They clothed themselves with the skins of wild beasts and lodged under trees and among bushes. But in that state they were happy because they were free. Should those noble ancestors arise from the dead and find their posterity trucking away that liberty which they purchased at so dear a rate for the mean trifles and frivolous merchandise of Great Britain, they would return to the grave with holy indignation against us. In this day of danger, let us exert every talent and try every lawful means for the preservation of our liberties. Remember, the whole point of joining into a social compact was to protect our unalienable rights and to advance the happiness of mankind. Tyranny was diametrically opposed to this underlying foundation. Stated another way, we have a solemn obligation to obey a just government and a solemn obligation to oppose an unjust one. Samuel West elaborates a bit more than some of his contemporaries when he explains why this is so. As we've discussed in earlier episodes, most of the founding generation very much believed in a creator who endowed people with our unalienable rights, and the purpose of government is the protection of those unalienable rights. As we discussed in the episode about limited government, some, like Thomas Hobbes, argue that because you consent to the government to protect your unalienable rights, it can do no wrong, because you have consented to the government. Locke rejected that idea, as did the founders. 
Here, West explains that submitting to a tyrannical government because of the reasoning of Hobbes is, in fact, all but blasphemy. It would imply a gross absurdity to assert that, when magistrates are ordained by the people solely for the purpose of being beneficial to the state, they must be obeyed when they are seeking to ruin and destroy it. This would imply that men were bound to act against the great law of self-preservation and to contribute their assistance to their own ruin and destruction in order that they may please and gratify the greatest monsters in nature who are violating the laws of God and destroying the rights of mankind. Unlimited submission and obedience is due to none but God alone. He has an absolute right to command. He alone has an uncontrollable sovereignty over us, because he alone is unchangeably good. He never will nor can require of us, constant with his nature and attributes, anything that is not fit and reasonable. His commands are all just and good. And to suppose that he has given any particular set of men a power to require obedience to that which is unreasonable, cruel, and unjust is robbing the deity of his justice and goodness, in which consists the peculiar glory of the divine character, and it is representing him under the horrid character of tyrant. This resistance, of course, should try to avoid violence, but when push comes to shove, the people need not lay down and accept tyranny. They have the right to use force to protect their liberties. This idea was widely accepted. Unitarian Congregationalist minister Simeon Howard was thought to be by contemporaries one of the ablest men New England ever produced. And he held positions at Harvard in addition to his church duties, and in a sermon preached to the Ancient and Honorable Artillery Company in Boston in 1773, and remember, he's telling this to an artillery company, he opined. But the experience of all ages has shown that those who are so unreasonable as to form designs of injuring others are seldom to be diverted from their purpose by argument and persuasion alone notwithstanding all that can be said to show the injustice and inhumanity they attempt they persist in it till they have gratified the unruly passion which set them to work and in this case what is to be done by the sufferer is he to use no other means for his safety but remonstrance or flight when these will not secure him is he patiently to take the injury and suffer himself to be robbed of his liberty or his life if the adversary sees fit to take it? Nature certainly forbids this tame submission and loudly calls to a more vigorous principle of the human mind. And this principle allows of everything necessary to self-defense, opposing force to force and violence to violence. This is so universally allowed that I need not attempt to prove it. You might think a minister would be concerned about invoking the right to use violence to protect our unalienable rights, but Minister Howard was untroubled by this problem, so long as the resistance was based on the defense of unalienable rights. Defending ourselves by force of arms against injurious attacks is a quite different thing from rendering evil for evil. The latter implies doing hurt to another because he has done hurt to us. The former implies doing hurt to another if he is hurt in the conflict only because there is no other way of avoiding the mischief he endeavors to do us. The one proceeds from malice and revenge, 
the other merely from self-love and a just concern for our own happiness and argues no ill will against any man. If you're hearing a pattern here, bingo. Many influential and respected colonial ministers were patriots and revolutionaries through and through. Not something usually taught in civics or history classes, or even in college. And Minister Howard was not quite done. Not one bit. Similar to Minister Shute, he explained that violent resistance was an obligation given by God himself. Drawing on biblical passages, he explained that since God had endowed us with our unalienable rights, we have a sacred obligation to protect them with force if necessary. Let me now offer a few considerations to show the obligations men are under to defend that liberty which providence has conferred upon them. This is a trust committed to us by heaven. We are accountable for the use we make of it and ought, therefore, to the best of our power, defend it. Should a person whose ability and circumstances enable him to do good in the world, to relieve his distressed brethren, and be an example of charity and other virtues, tamely yield up all his interest and become an absolute slave to some unjust and wicked oppressor, when he might by a manly resistance have secured his liberty, would he not be guilty of great unfaithfulness to God and justly liable to his condemnation? So we each, as individuals, have a duty to God to defend our inalienable rights. But what about a community or a nation? For that answer, we'll turn the show over to Brent Bassett for his Brent's Briefs. And Brent, please proceed, my friend. Thanks, Mike Gerard. So the question Mike Gerard left with us is whether a nation has the right to use violence to defend its unalienable rights. The same answer is the same as it was with individuals. To fulfill their duty to God and their destiny in service of the Lord, the nation needs to preserve their liberties by force if necessary. Minister Howard continues. This reasoning is as applicable to a community as to an individual. A kingdom or commonwealth as such is accountable for the improvement it makes of its advantages. It is bound to preserve them and employ them for the honor of God, so far as it can to be an example of virtue to neighboring communities and afford them relief when they are in distress. But by yielding up their possession and liberties to an encroaching oppressive power, they become in a great measure, incapable of these duties, and are liable to be made the minister of sin through the compulsion of their masters. Out of faithfulness, then, to God, or in order to escape the doom of slothful servants, we should endeavor to defend our rights and liberties. Men are also bound, individuals and societies, to take care of their temporal happiness and do all they can lawfully to promote it. But what can be more inconsistent with this duty than submitting to great encroachments upon our liberty? Such submission tends to slavery, and complete slavery implies every evil that the malice of man and devils can inflict. Again, the regard which we owe to the happiness of others makes this a duty. As this passage reveals, the founders believed that a whole people, if necessary, should oppose an oppressive government. And when that happens, the oppressive government has lost its legitimacy and the people have the right to commence a revolution. After all, the government in essence is charged to act as a guardian or fiduciary for the people to protect their rights. 
When the government betrays that trust, the people are relieved of the responsibility to follow the government and not only have a God-given duty to oppose it, but have the right to throw off the oppressive government through revolution. John Locke forcefully makes this point repeatedly in his second treatise on civil government. Though in a constituted commonwealth, standing upon its own basis and acting according to its nature, that is, acting for the preservation of the community, there can be but one supreme power, which is the legislative, to which all the rest are and must be subordinate. Yet the legislative body, being only a fiduciary power to act for certain ends, there remains still in the people a supreme power to remove or alter the legislative when they find the legislative act contrary to the trust reposed in them. For all power given with trust for the attuning an end, being limited by that end, whenever that end is manifestly neglected or opposed, the trust must necessarily be forfeited, and the power devolve into the hands of those who gave it, who may place it anew where they shall link best for their safety and security. And thus the community perpetually retains a supreme power for saving themselves from the attempts and designs of anybody even of their legislatures, whenever they shall be so foolish or so wicked as to lay and carry on designs against the liberties and properties of the subject. For no man or society of men, having a power to deliver upon their preservation, or consequently the means of it to the absolute will and arbitrary dominion of another, whenever any one shall go about to bring them into such a slavish condition, they will always have a right to preserve what they have not a power to part with, and to rid themselves of those who invade this fundamental, sacred, and unalterable law of self-preservation for which they entered into society. And thus the community may be said in this respect to be always the supreme power, but not as considered under any form of government, because this power of the people can never take place till the government be dissolved. In other words, the people are the supreme power. Even when they create a government, they are still the source of power. And when a government goes sideways and violates the rights of the people, the government forfeits the right to rule, and the people have the right to rebel with violence. Where tyranny begins, just government ends, and the right to abolish or reform that government is triggered. Locke explained that an oppressive government is in effect a government that is committing violence against the people without due authority, and the response of the people is to meet that unjust force with just force. For having erected a legislative with an intent, they should exercise the power of making laws, either at certain set times or when there is a need of it, when they are hindered by any force from what is so necessary to the society, and wherein the safety and preservation of the people consists, the people have a right to remove it by force. In all states and conditions, the true remedy of force without authority is to oppose force to it. The use of force without authority always puts him that uses it into a state of war, as the aggressor, and renders him liable to be treated accordingly. Locke's theory was enthusiastically embraced in the colonies. This was in part in light of their view of the Glorious Revolution of 1688 in England. To make a very long story short, and really, that is another podcast series, hint, hint, nudge, nudge to you aspiring podcasters, the Glorious Revolution was seen by many in England and in the colonies as the epitome of a just revolution. 
Before 1688, many in England felt that their Catholic King James II was a tyrant who was subverting English liberty. When James had a son who would become his heir and perpetuate Catholic rule, James II was overthrown by his own Protestant daughter Mary and her Dutch husband, William of Orange. In the aftermath of the Revolution, the Parliament gained many powers against the King, and a groundbreaking Bill of Rights was adopted. This was the context for John Locke's second treatise of government. Locke was in essence justifying the glorious revolution. This, among other things, became the philosophical underpinnings of the Whigs in England, which went from somewhat of a minority view in England to the prevailing one in America. When British oppression came to America's shores, the colonists drew many parallels and lessons from the circumstances that resulted in the Glorious Revolution. Thus, many years before 1776, the colonies embraced the measures of refusing to import or consume British goods as resistance to taxation without representation and other oppressive actions. Although this action fell well short of revolution, Silas Downer could as early as 1768 see that the logic of the resistance could mean that the colonists could very well need to risk their lives to defend their liberties. It is thought that nothing will be of more avail in our present distressed situation than to stop our imports from Britain. Charity begins at home, and we ought primarily to consult our own interest. And besides, a little distress might bring the people that country to a better temper and a sense of their injustice towards us. No nation or people in the world ever made any figure who were dependent on any other country for their food or clothing. Let us then in justice to ourselves and our children break off a trade so pernicious to our interest and which is likely to swallow up both our estates and liberties. A trade which hath nourished the people in idleness and dissipation. We cannot, we will not, betray the trust reposed in us by our ancestors by giving up the least of our liberties. We will be free men, or will die. We cannot endure the thought of being governed by subjects, and we make no doubt that the Almighty will look down upon our righteous contest with gracious approbation. We cannot bear the reflection that this country should be yielded to them who never know what is our due to ourselves. Let us act prudently, peacefully, firmly, and jointly. Let us break off all trade and commerce with a people who would enslave us as the only means to prevent our ruin. May we strengthen the hands of the civil government here and have all our exertions tempered with the principles of peace and order. And may we by precept and example encourage the practice of virtue and morality without which no people can be happy. It only remains now that we dedicate the Tree of Liberty. Samuel West, who we quoted before in his Election Day Sermon of 1776, also clearly expressed this sentiment. The sermon was delivered before the Massachusetts Governing Council and House of Representatives. He was the minister of the Congregational Church in Dartmouth, Massachusetts, and active member of the Massachusetts Constitutional Convention of 1780. He declined to serve in federal constitutional convention, but was in the Massachusetts convention that ratified the federal constitution in 1788. He boldly declared that not only did the people have the right to violently oppose an oppressive government, but the people had the right and a duty 
to create a new government to replace it. When a people find themselves cruelly oppressed by the parent state, they have an undoubted right to throw off the yoke and to assert their liberty. If they find good reason to judge that they have sufficient power and strength to maintain their ground in defending their rights against their oppressors. For in this case, by the law of self-preservation, which is the first law of nature, they have not only an undoubted right, but it is the indispensable duty, if they cannot be redressed any other way, to renounce all submission to the government that has oppressed them, and set up an independent state of their own, even though they may be vastly inferior in numbers to the state that has oppressed them. Such a people have a right to form themselves into a body politic and assume to themselves all the powers of a free state. For can it be rational to suppose that people should be subject to the tyranny of a set of men who are perfect strangers to them and cannot be supposed to have that fellow feeling for them that we generally have for those with whom we are connected and acquainted? And besides, through their unacquaintedness with the circumstances of the people over whom they claim the right of jurisdiction, are utterly unable to judge, in a multitude of cases, which is best for them? In the years leading up to the Declaration of Independence, the founding generation were convinced that Great Britain's rule had devolved into an oppressive tyranny, that the colonists would become the slaves of the empire. We will explore this in great detail when we examine the long train of abuses and usurpations delineated in the Declaration. But for now, what is important is the Founders came to hold this belief based on a series of British actions beginning in 1763 and continuing until July 4, 1776. The Revolution was not a quick process. On the contrary, it had been building for well over 10 years. Two years before the Declaration, the Massachusetts and Virginia legislatures called for a meeting of delegates from the various colonies to devise a strategy of resistance and reconciliation with Great Britain. Lacking only North Carolina and Georgia, the first Continental Congress convened in Philadelphia. The importance of the Congress was not lost on the colonists. The Suffolk Resolves, adopted by the county of Suffolk, Massachusetts on September 9, 1774, and penned by Bostonian Dr. Joseph Warren, explained to the Congress the hour at hand. Warren, a Harvard-educated physician turned fiery orator and leader, would later, on the eve of the Battle of Lexington, dispatch Paul Revere and William Dawes to warn that the British were coming. He was martyred as a volunteer soldier at the Battle of Bunker Hill, after declining command of the troops following his recent commission as a major general. One British commander at Bunker Hill took some solace in his death, calling Warren, quote, the greatest incendiary in all America, unquote. Oh yeah, Judge Warren's daughter Leah, you know, the co-founder of Patriot Week, has done some genealogical work, and it is pretty sure that they are indirect ancestors of Dr. Warren. Huh. This may explain their enthusiasm for American history and the American Revolution in particular. It is only fitting that we turn the episode back to Judge Warren to take it from here. Thanks, Brent, for yet another brilliant Brent's brief. Warren's beginning of the Suffolk Resolves included the reasoning of Locke about the right and duty to resist tyranny. In particular, the first and fourth resolves provide, oh, and I'm going to quote the resolve since it was written by my namesake. Uh, sorry, Dave. Quote, that it is an indispensable duty which we owe to God, our country, ourselves, and posterity 
by all lawful ways and means in our power to maintain, defend, and preserve those civil and religious rights and liberties for which many of our fathers fought, bled, and died, and to hand them down entire to future generations. That no obedience is due from this province to either or any part of the acts of British oppression, but that they be rejected as the attempts of a wicked administration to enslave America." Unquote. The remainder of the resolves give a highly detailed accounting of how the British were oppressing the colonists and the specific reactions that the colonists should take. We will return to these details in later episodes, but the preamble, which clearly incorporates the principles of Locke and the others we have reviewed today, oh, the preamble sings with what is at stake from the viewpoint of the first principles and how it was playing out on the American stage. Quote, On the fortitude, on the wisdom, and on the exertions of this important day is suspended the fate of this new world and of unborn millions. If a boundless extent of the continent, swarming with millions, will tamely submit to live move and have their being at the arbitrary will of a licentious minister, they basely yield to voluntary slavery and future generations shall load their memories with incessant excretions. On the other hand, if we arrest the hand which would ransack our pockets, if we disarm the parasite which points the dagger to our bosoms, if we nobly defeat that fatal edict which proclaims a power to frame laws for us in all cases whatsoever, thereby entailing the endless and numberless curses of slavery upon us, our heirs and their heirs forever, if we successfully resist that unparalleled usurpation of unconstitutional power, whereby our capital is robbed of the means of life, whereby the streets of Boston are thronged with military executioners, whereby our coasts are lined and harbors crowded with ships of war, whereby the charter of the colony, that sacred barrier against the encroachments of tyranny, is mutilated and in effect annihilated, whereby a murderous law is framed to shelter villains from the hands of justice, whereby the unalienable and inestimable inheritance which, which we derive from nature, the Constitution of Britain, and the privileges warranted to us in the charter of the province is totally wrecked, annulled, and vacated. Posterity will acknowledge that virtue which preserved them free and happy. And while we enjoy the rewards and blessings of the faithful, the torrent of Pangentist will roll our reputations to that latest period when the streams of time shall be absorbed in the abyss of eternity." Unquote. Oh my gosh, Warren really knew how to inspire. There it is. The fate of the world rested on what happened in America. The resolves called out England for oppression, and it also called out Americans to live up to their duty to rebel against it. Based on what was at stake, the Suffolk resolves resolved that Massachusetts convene a new provincial Congress. In other words, to create a new legislative assembly to represent the people and to replace the legislative assembly that had been established under English law. Many other petitions concurred. The governor completely disagreed, 
and he forbid the colonial legislature from even meeting. But on October 5, 1774, the colonial legislature met in defiance of the governor's order, and at the end of the day, with its final act, it called for the creation of a new provincial congress the next day, and then dissolved itself. The next day, October 6, 1774, the Massachusetts Provincial Congress met, and John Hancock would be its first president, succeeded by Warren. The colonists were literally revolting against the British Empire and establishing a new government in the form and based on the principles they expected would secure their rights and happiness. Even before the Massachusetts Provincial Congress had met, the First Continental Congress took heed of Warren's admonitions and recommendations. Again, the colonies were reuniting to create a new government, right there on the spot. On September 17, 1774, the First Continental Congress endorsed as its own the Sulphic Resolves. The English ignored the pleas of the Continental Congress for the British to adopt policies that would preserve their liberties. The colonies and Great Britain moved closer and closer to war. Indeed, King George III had long since decided, quote, the New England governments are in a state of rebellion. Blows must decide whether they are subject to this country or independent, unquote. The British troops stationed in America were growing in number, and they appeared ready to violently enforce colonial compliance with Great Britain's wishes. The colonists across America began to seize and secure as many arms and as much gunpowder as possible. On March 23, 1775, Patrick Henry would elevate the crisis to the next level. A former storekeeper turned Virginian lawyer, he was credited by Thomas Jefferson with setting, quote, the ball of the revolution, unquote, in motion. Henry would eventually become wartime governor of Virginia and the Constitution's most impressive opponent. But at this time, he was defining the cause of American independence and rallying the country to its support. In a speech before the Virginia Convention of Delegates, Henry made an earth-shattering speech. Sorry once again, Dave. Leah usually does this for us at our annual Patrick Henry dinner fundraiser, so I'm going to fill in for her. Henry declared that the colonists had, quote, done everything that could be done to avert the storm which is now coming on. We have petitioned. We have remonstrated. We have supplicated. We have prostrated ourselves before the tyrannical hands of the ministry and parliament. Our petitions have been slighted. Our remonstrances produced additional violence and insult. Our supplications have been disregarded. And we have been spurned with contempt from the foot of the throne. Our chains are forged. Their clanking may be heard on the plains of Boston. If we wish to be free, if we mean to preserve inviolate those inestimable privileges for which we have been so long contending, if we mean not basely to abandon the noble struggle in which we have so long engaged, we must fight. It is in vain, sir, to extenuate the matter. Gentlemen may cry, peace, peace, but there is no peace. Our brethren are already in the field. Why stand we here idle? What is it that gentlemen wish? Is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, Almighty God. I know not what course others may take, but for me, give me liberty or give me death.
unquote. When military confrontation erupted and then escalated at the battles of Lexington and Concord on April 19, 1775, the Second Continental Congress found Patrick Henry Wright. After the battles of Lexington and Concord, the leading patriots adopted in spirit Henry's declaration. It would be liberty or death. Warren, for example, echoed Henry's sentiment when he wrote that, quote, to the persecution and tyranny of the king's cruel ministry, we will not tamely submit. Appealing to heaven for justice of our own cause, we determine to die or be free, unquote. A few short months later, on July 6, 1775, the Congress approved military action in defense of the rights of the colonists in its declaration of the causes and necessity of taking up arms. The declaration was half written by John Dickinson and the other half by Thomas Jefferson. It proclaimed that Parliament, having, quote, attempted to effect the cruel and impolitic purpose of enslaving these colonies by violence, rendered it necessary for us to close with their last appeal from reason to arms, unquote. The Declaration of the Causes and Necessity explained that Americans were unwilling to be enslaved without a fight. The Declaration of Causes and Necessity affirmed for America what Henry had said for Virginia, quote, We most solemnly, before God and the world, declare that exerting the utmost energy of those powers, which our beneficent Creator hath graciously bestowed upon us, the arms we have been compelled by our enemies to assume, we will, in defiance of every hazard, with unabating firmness and perseverance, employ for the preservation of our liberties, being with one mind, resolved to die free men rather than to live like slaves. Unquote. On October 4, 1775, the town of Worcester, Massachusetts, leapfrogged ahead of the Continental Congress and declared that unless the British backed down, it would dissolve its bands with England. Soon all the colonies would be prepared to declare themselves free and independent states. On January 9, 1776, Thomas Paine's extremely powerful and influential Common Sense had been published, swaying general public opinion towards independence. It was basically the closing argument about freeing the colonies from the king. Thus, in May 1776, the town of Malden, Massachusetts, could confidently, quote, renounce with disdain our connection with the kingdom of slaves, with a bid of final adieu to Britain, unquote. Very soon, all the colonies would agree that their freedoms could only be secure if they severed all ties from the British Empire and established a new independent nation upon the just principles of a free government. John Adams summarized the American experience, quote, What do we mean by the revolution? The war? That was no part of the revolution. It was only an effect and consequence of it. The revolution was in the minds of the people, and this was effected from 1760 to 1775, in the course of 15 years before a drop of blood was shed at Lexington, unquote. After the Declaration of Independence was issued, the practical reality was that the colonies became states and began to adopt new constitutions. On the national level, a new government was also forged. The new country was fulfilling the first principle of revolution. Indeed, many states literally integrated the first principle of revolution in their state constitutions. Several of the state constitutions that were immediately adopted around or in the aftermath of the Declaration had long passages about how they had become free and independent states. Usually it was the preamble. 
Later constitutions has passages like this one from New Hampshire's Constitution of 1784. Quote, Government being instituted for the common benefit, protection, and security of the whole community, and not for the private interest or emolument of any one man, family, or class of men. Therefore, whenever the ends of government are perverted and public liberty manifestly endangered, and all other means of redress are ineffectual, the people may and of right ought to reform the old or establish a new government. The doctrine of non-resistance against arbitrary power and oppression is absurd, slavish, and destructive of the good and happiness of mankind." Unquote. Others are a bit more tempered. For example, the oldest written constitution in the world today was primarily drafted by John Adams. The Preamble and Declaration of Rights of the Massachusetts Constitution of 1780 provide a right to reform, alter, or totally change the form of government. Quote, the end of the institution, maintenance and administration of government, is to secure the existence of the body politic, to protect it, and to furnish the individuals who compose it with the power of enjoying in safety and tranquility their natural rights and the blessings of life. And whenever these objects are not obtained, the people have a right to alter the government and to take measures necessary for their safety, prosperity, and happiness. Government is instituted for the common good, for the protection, safety, prosperity, and happiness of the people, and not for the profit, honor, or private interest of any one man, family, or class of men. Therefore, the people alone have an incontestable, unalienable, and indefeasible right to institute government, and to reform, alter, or totally change the same when their protection, safety, prosperity, and happiness require it." Unquote. Other state constitutions that in the past or currently express in some fashion the first principle that the people have the right to alter or abolish an oppressive government include Alabama, Arkansas, California, Connecticut, Idaho, Indiana, Iowa, Kentucky, Maine, Maryland, Minnesota, Mississippi, Missouri, Montana, New Jersey, New York, North Carolina, North Dakota, Ohio, Oklahoma, Oregon, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, South Carolina, South Dakota, Tennessee, Texas, Utah, Vermont, Virginia, Washington, West Virginia, and Wyoming. My home state of Michigan's 1850 Constitution included this very strong provision, quote, Government is instituted for the protection, security, and benefit of the people, and they have the right at all times to alter or reform the same, and to abolish one form of government and establish another whenever the public good requires it, unquote. Unfortunately, subsequent constitutions have eliminated this phrase in Michigan. Hmm, I may have to work on fixing that mistake. Now, Colorado's first and only constitution has a provision, Article 2, Section 2 of their Bill of Rights, that is literally entitled, in all caps, my new quote, people may alter or abolish form of government proviso, unquote. Suffice it to say that the founding generation and subsequent ones firmly believe that the people have the right to alter or abolish an oppressive government and to replace it with a new one in the form and based on such principles they believe best affect their happiness and safety. Why did the colonists invoke this right? Well, that's for many future episodes. 
some key takeaways from this episode. Because the people formed the government to protect our unalienable rights, a government has no legitimate authority to infringe on those unalienable rights. When a government infringes on those rights, we hold it as a self-evident truth that we have a right, no, the God-given duty, to resist such oppression. If the government has gone too far, we have the right to resist by using violence. We also have a self-evident right to alter or abolish an oppressive government. The Declaration of Independence articulates these first principles as the justification for the American Revolution. As Americans, we are very fortunate to be blessed to live in a time and place such as this that is dedicated to the right to alter or abolish an oppressive government. Fellow patriots, I want to thank you for your time. And please join us next episode when we continue our exploration of the Declaration of Independence, in particular the following, quote, Prudence indeed will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. And accordingly, all experience has shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations, pursuing invariably the same object, invents a design to reduce them under absolute despotism. It is their right, it is their duty, to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies, and such is now the necessity which constrains them to alter their former systems of government. Unquote. Until then, God bless you, and God bless America. <laughs>